Welcome to Red Pill Revolution. My name is Austin Adams. Red Pill Revolution started out with me realizing everything that I knew, everything that I believed, everything I interpret about my life is through the lens of the information I was spoon-fed as a child. Religion, politics, history, conspiracies, Hollywood, medicine, money, food, all of it. Everything we know was tactfully written to influence your decisions and your view on reality by those in power. Now, I'm on a mission. A mission to retrain and re-educate myself to find the true reality of what is behind that curtain. And I'm taking your ass with me. Welcome to the revolution. Hello and welcome to Red Pill Revolution. My name is Austin Adams. Thank you so much for listening today. This is episode number 30 of the Red Pill Revolution podcast. And again, thank you so much for listening. I'm uh, pretty excited about this conversation we're going to have today. It is all surrounding, you know, a little bit in the Memorial Day theme here. We are going to be discussing all of uh, some really incredible stories surrounding some of the Medal of Honor recipients from our great nation here in the United States of America. Um, I know we have some people listening abroad, but there's some really incredible stories, some really incredible people that we're going to highlight today. Uh, So I'm really excited to get into this. A few of the names that we're going to be going over is Kyle Carpenter, Dakota Meyer, Salvatore Gianta, John Chapman, Thomas Payne, and then we got a sprinkle of some Jocko Willink in here to both get us into the episode and an outro to the episode. So I, I think that's the, I don't think you can get any more American than Jocko Willink. So let's go ahead and jump into this clip here. A little bit of uh, some Memorial Day United States pride here. Here is Jocko Willink. In a country that most people would struggle to find on a map, in a compound that few possess the courage to enter. Men from my previous life took the fight to our enemy. In that compound, they found men that pray five times a day for your destruction. Those praying men don't know me, they don't know you, and they don't know America. They don't understand our compassion, our freedoms, and our tolerance. I know it may seem as if some of those things are currently missing, but they remain at our core and always will. Those men don't care about your religious beliefs. They don't care about your political opinions. They don't care if you sit on the left or the right, liberal or conservative, pacifist or warrior. They don't care how much you believe in diversity, equality, or freedom of speech. They don't care. I'm sorry you've never felt the alarm bells ringing in your body, the combination of fear and adrenaline as you move towards the fight instead of running from it. I'm sorry you've never heard someone cry out for help or cried out for help yourself, relying on the courage of others to bring you home. 
I'm sorry you've never tasted the salt from your own tears as you stand at flag-draped coffins burying men you were humbled to call your friends. I don't wish those experiences on you. But I do wish you had them. If you had them, it would change the way you act. It would change the way you value. It would change the way you appreciate. You would become quick to open your eyes and slow to open your mouth. Most will never understand the sacrifice required to keep evil men like those from that distant compound away from our doorstep. But it would not hurt you to try and understand. It would not hurt you to take a moment to think of the relentless drain on family, friends, and loved ones that are left behind. Sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months, sometimes for years, sometimes forever. Ideas are not protected by words. Paper and ink may outline the foundation and principles of this nation, but it is blood, only blood, that protects it. In that dusty compound, a man you have never met gave everything he had so that you have the freedom to think, speak, and act however you choose. He went there for all of us, whether you loved or hated what he stood for. He went there to preserve the opportunity and privilege to believe, to be, and to become what we want. This country, every single person living inside of its borders and under the banner of its flag, owe that man. We owe that man everything. We owe him the respect that his sacrifice deserves. Saying thank you is not enough. We send our best and lose them in the fight against the worst evil this world has to offer. If you want to respect and honor their sacrifice, it needs to be more than words. You have to live it. Take a minute and look around. Soak it in. All of it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. You have the choice every day as to which category you want to be in, in which direction you want to move. You have that choice because the best among us, the best we ever had to offer, fought and bled and died for it. Don't ever forget that. Wow. Well, what a way to start the show today. 
uh, definitely hit me in my feels, uh, Jacko Willick there, just kind of outlining what, what this day is about, right? The, the, the Memorial Day is, is, you know, shrouded with barbecue grills and, and beach parties with the family and, you know, and all that's amazing and all that's great. And I'm sure every soldier who has ever sacrificed his, his life would have wanted it that way, right? Where, where we're celebrating life, not just, you know, being, uh, ha- having sorrow for those that we have lost. But it doesn't take away from the fact that we have to remember what the day's about, you know. We have to remember the reason that we are able to even have this type of weekend and, and the true reason behind that, which is soldiers who have lost their lives for us to have the freedoms that we have here in the United States. Now, over the last few episodes, you know, I'm sure it seems like we've had we've had a tough go here in the United States, you know, the last the last several months, the last couple of years even. Um, but I don't think that takes away from from something that I found pretty powerful in that statement that Jacko Willink just said was that the 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 piece of paper is what defines who our country is, but the blood of the individuals who are willing to defend it is truly what matters. And and that really rings true. And I think we're going to see that today with a lot of the individuals that we're going to hear their stories and know that they're just everyday people, everyday people, just like you and me, who decided to go into the military for one reason or another, um, but generally because they're a patriot, because they believe in, in what our country stands for. And this is something that I've had to wrestle with recently, right? I, I am a, a veteran myself. I am not a combat veteran. So I did not have the experience that these individuals have had at all. Um, but, you know, something that we, we have to remind ourselves during this time is that there, there is truly a, a unique individual who's willing to run to the fight. And every single story that we hear of here is not only the individuals who signed that line, not only the individuals who picked up a weapon and went overseas and left their families, left their children, left their, their, their significant others, left everything behind just so they could, could go and fight for what they believe in, right? And, that, and that's kind of what I was getting at before, which is that, you know, it's, it's, diffi- it's, it's easy to look at all of the flaws that we have in the United States here today. It's easy to look at, you know, the, the political divide and the partisan divides that we have and, and kind of just, um, you know, diminish what these great men have done for us. But, but that's, that's such a shallow viewpoint, right? And, and the reason that these men signed that dotted line is not because they believe in the politicians. It's not because they believe in... You know, they, they believe in who we are as a nation. They believe in the individuals that are around them. They believe in the that piece of paper that Jocko Willink just talked about, right? The Constitution, which was written as a, a literal divide between totalitarianism that we're seeing all across the world right now. And almost every, so many, so many countries are dealing with with this, you know, totalitarian states. You look at China, you, you look at the way that they're just ripping people off of their streets and like these like home alone white jumpsuits and and you know for how long we've looked at these different countries and and thought that just it could never be like that here well why is that well that's because of two reasons two reasons why that is and the first reason is we have our constitution our constitution is is the founding document of our nation that allows us to have a a literal defense against individuals who are in the political system who are trying to take as much power as possible. The Constitution stops us from having people who can go in and become the system. There is already a set system that is out there. There is already a, a outline of the way that we have to act and the separation of, of powers and all of these individual things that make it, that, that were pre-thought out, knowing that politicians are 
dirty, knowing that politicians are generally corruptible, knowing that people are flawed, right? And that's truly what it is, is people are flawed. And to know that people are flawed and, and to implement an institution and, and uh, a piece of paper, a founding document with our constitution, which will allow us to have a literal divide, a literal wall, a defense against those corruptible individuals who seek power in the easiest way to go find it, which is through the political system. So that is number one. We have our constitution, which is a actual defensive wall against those corruptible individuals on the inside. And that is the number one thing that we have to protect ourselves from if we're going to remain a free country. Now, number two, which is equally as important is to have is that what we have the fortune of having here in the United States is the greatest military power in the world, the greatest military power in the history of the world. Right. And that doesn't protect us from the inside more than it protects us from the outside. So to allow us to maintain this organization, to maintain this this ongoing freedom away from other totalitarian individuals who are wanting to come in and, and push their political agendas, whether they're from, you know, foreign or domestic, right, is, is the what you raise your hand. I, I promise to defend in the, the country from foreign and domestic enemies. The foreign aspect of that is where the military comes into play, right? And, and the military is just a br broken, is a, is a, a list of individual names who are willing to put themselves, put their lives on the line to make these things happen. So let's go ahead and let's jump into the very first clip here that we have, which is actually the, so let's do a little bit of background on the, the Medal of Honor. So all of these individuals that we're highlighting today are Medal of Honor recipients. Now it is Memorial Day. Some of these individuals, I believe even most of them are not deceased, which I, I, is definitely a positive thing. Um, but just so you know that, right? And this is Memorial Day but I am highlighting Medal of Honor, right? So the Medal of Honor is the very first, uh, it, was, it was the very first um, distinguishing factor for the American military. And it started during the um, American Revolution. So uh, Abraham Lincoln implemented the Medal of Honor and it's kind of just it been the most distinguished honor that you can have uh, being a part of the military. All right, now the structure of this with the Medal of Honor is that you actually have to either get a congressional, um, a, a congressman has to put your name down for the Medal of Honor or your chain of command. So those are two different ways that you can get a Medal of Honor. So far, there's been around 3,500 Medal of Honor recipients. Most of those Medal of Honor recipients were at the very beginning. Like I think it's like 80% of the Medal of Honor recipients were towards the very, very beginning of when the Medal of Honor was, uh, was made. And so since then, the requirements to receive the Medal of Honor has gone up and, and become much more um, distinguished. And, and there's a lot more, um, I guess, uh, I don't know, there's a lot there's a lot more um, specific things that you have to boxes you have to check to, to get the Medal of Honor as opposed to what it was like before. So a vast, vast majority came at the very beginning of when the Medal of Honor was made in the early 1800s. OK, so. There's the background for it. Now, since then, the most recent uh, requirements change was in 1963, I believe, where they began to make these requirements more stringent, and you see less and less of these Medal of Honors today. So the very first step, one that we're going to watch here is of Kyle Carpenter. Kyle Carpenter is an incredible story. He's actually the youngest Medal of Honor recipient ever. Um, it's truly, truly an incredible story. I don't want to take anything away from it for you guys here. So let's go ahead and listen to it, and then we will discuss.
I joined the Marine Corps because I wanted to uh, devote my life, uh, my body, if need be, to something greater than myself or any one individual. In 2010, I deployed with 2nd Battalion, 9th Marines to Marja, Afghanistan. We were constantly attacked, just like we were every single day for the entire deployment. The fighting was very intense, and it wasn't a matter of, okay, is it gonna happen, but just a matter of when. Myself and an amazing uh, friend and fellow Marine, Lance Corporal Nick Euphrasio, we were on top of that roof together. We were near the end of our four-hour post position on top of the roof when the enemy initiated a daylight attack with hand grenades. I felt like I got hit really hard in the face. My vision was as if I was looking at a TV with no connection. It was just white and gray static. I thought about my family and how devastated they were going to be, especially my mother, that I didn't make it home from Afghanistan. And uh, I closed my eyes and I faded out of consciousness for what I thought was gonna be my last time on this earth. Injuries were so severe that still nine years later, um, it's hard to comprehend that I survived. All right, so what it's saying here, I'm going to pause it real quick because it's 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 saying some stuff that's pretty important. Basically, what ended up happening is uh, Kyle actually jumped on a grenade, um, and it says that he has very little recollection of what actually happened during this event. Um, but according to the information that they had here, he uh, I'll just read it to you. Says says to this day, Kyle's memory of what happened on November 21st, 2010, it remains blurry. But a military review of the incident determined that he had covered the grenade with his body to save the life of Corporal Nick Euphrasio. On June 19, 2014, Kyle was awarded the Medal of Honor, the nation's highest and most prestigious personal military decoration. All right, I just wanted to read that to you guys. I mean, that's pretty, I mean, literally the the the... Um, Captain America story right there for you in, in a real individual. And, and we feel the need to create false idols to, to be able to idolize somebody and think that somebody would have the capabilities or the, the mindfulness or, or the courage to do something during this in, in that type of situation. And that's why it's outlined in a movie in Captain America, uh, an individual, you know, Captain America goes on to jump on the grenade, right? This guy, Kyle Carpenter, actually did that in the state of war to save his friends. How truly incredible and like you know gives me goosebumps just thinking about it that's it's 
amazing. Um, so let's, let's finish this. If there's anything else that comes up, I'll go ahead and read it to you guys. So um, here we go. All right. So while in one second, while that loads up for us, um, but yeah, really incredible story. The fact that, you know, the, he, this individual actually did. So it says that several grenades were tossed onto the roof where he was at. And one of them, um, would take an enormous toll. It says Kyle was certain he was going to die when that happened. Um, it says Kyle is often asked, uh, what the medal of honor means to him. Um, and let's see if we can get this clip going here to discuss what he actually says there for that. Here we go. We're just here because we're here. You know, we got here because of um, incredible amounts of courage and sacrifice. The medal represents all who have raised their right hand and sworn to give their life, if called upon, for their country. It represents those who have never made it home to receive the thanks and recognition they deserve. Those who charged the beaches in World War II, froze while fighting in Korea, bled out across the lush fields of Vietnam, and those who never made it home because of another deadly blast in the battlefields of Iraq and Afghanistan. Those who were tortured for years in prisoner of war camps and those who still rest in distant lands forever remaining missing in action. The medal represents the parents, husbands, wives, and loved ones who have heard the dreaded knock on their front doors to find a telegram or service member delivering the unbearable news. This is where the true weight of the medal is carried. Being a Medal of Honor recipient is a beautiful burden, but one I am honored to carry. All right, and at the end of the video there, what they show is uh, Kyle going ahead and putting on his Medal of Honor. So. Um, really an incredible story, unbelievable story, and one that will will go on in history as the you know the the real Captain America courage here with Kyle Carpenter. Um, you know, I almost feel like there should have been his name in the credits of the Captain America movie that they you know stole stole that scene from something that actually happened with a true hero um, with Kyle Carpenter there. So what an incredible story. Um, now, the next one that we're going to discuss here is going to be Dakota Meyer. Now, Dakota Meyer is, is a, a somewhat of a large figure when it comes to combat veterans who have spoken out. He's been on Joe Rogan, I believe, once or twice, I think twice, where the first time he went on and discussed his story directly. And his story is is a hard one to listen to and, and a pretty gruesome one at that. And then, you know, that's kind of the thing that you hear about the differences between war I don't know, you know, the, the way that our modern wars are fought is, is a lot of times, you know, you, you think of a gunfight and you're pressing a button from a far land or like from, from hundreds of yards away and, and, and shooting at, you know, enemy fire zones and, and you know, you're seeing small areas where you're shooting at. And, and that didn't used to be the case, right? You think back to like the way that they fought in, I don't know, think of like, you know, 1700s was like swords and stuff that's not that far removed from where we are. So there's some really gruesome stories that come out of like older wars. 
And we, we don't have as many hand-to-hand combat stories. And Dakota Meyer is one of those stories where it really just reminds you of the, the real gritty, terrible aspects of even modern war. And um, we'll hear a little bit more about it when, when he discusses it here. But he talks about, um, in, in this clip, he not only discusses what he actually went through, what he did, um, but Dakota Meyer is an incredible story where I believe he was the only one of his team that made it out of a situation where um, they basically left them stranded. So I don't want to take away too much of his story surrounding it, um, but it's a, it's a really incredible story. It's a little, you know, he, I believe he ends up, um, hand, gets in a hand-to-hand combat situation with somebody and ends up killing them with a rock. Whew, man, like that's, uh, ter- I, I can't even imagine what these guys carry around with them, right? In, in that Kyle Carpenter story, not only the fact that he jumped on a grenade, but the fact that he lived to tell about it, it has very little recollection of what happened. Must be a really difficult thing to, to try and wrestle with. Right to try and you know how, how often does that come up in his mind and, and to not even remember what actually happened when it occurred must be really I don't know I, I guess a blessing in some ways but also frustrating because it's such a pivotal moment in your life right like you have how many days of your life that that you know thousands and thousands of days in your life and and to have this one most impactful day like whether it's with what happened with Kyle Carpenter where he jumps on that grenade and lives to tell the tale or whether it's about Dakota Meyer where he ends up, you know, um, having to take this other man's life. And he talks about not only having to take this man's life, but like the humanity behind it and, and looking into this man's eyes and knowing that he's just another, uh, another person just like him who has a family and kids. And, um, it's, it's, it's tough, but, but I think it's necessary. We have to know what these people go through to properly be able to memorialize, you know, the other soldiers who actually did fall in these types of situations. But um, let's go ahead and listen to the Dakota Meyer story now. Well, I think sometimes people need to hear it from someone like you, oh. you know, or someone like Jocko or, you know, the, the the beautiful thing about these podcasts is that you get to hear people's perspective yeah. and a lot of them are eye-opening. You know, they, they, they're, they literally can change the world because they change the way you behave yeah. and you interact with people when you listen to it. Yeah. And that podcast that you did with Jocko when I was listening to it, I mean, it changed my whole day. It changed like how I was going to look at my day. I was, you know, instead of like looking at my day like, oh, it's a normal day, I was thinking, God damn, I'm lucky. Yeah. God damn, I'm lucky. And God damn, imagine experiencing what you, and how old were you at the time? I was 21. 21 years old. Yeah. And experiencing what you experienced in that insane firefight being locked down. And I mean, how many guys did you wind up engaging with? I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, everyone that I got an opportunity with, right. And it just, you know, it was just, uh, you know, it was so chaotic. I mean, I, you know, I still, I, I look, I, I think about it all the time, obviously. Um, it's something I could have never experienced. I mean, I trained for war every single day when I was in the Marine Corps. I mean, it was what, I, it was what my job was. And I still could have never imagined that day the way it was or anything to turn out. I could have never pictured it. I could have never, and, and and I think every day it goes by, I think there's a reckoning of it, right? The way that I seen it that day is not the way I see it today. And, um, I think that comes with, you know, just, just sharpening and just your body, you know, you change and you, you see different things in perspective, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, 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 you know, that day, I mean, it's still, I mean, it still is just, you know, just, it's just there and, and, 
and literally I, I walked out of there and, and I, I just think about all the time today, I just think about all the time of how many generations just that day were changed. How many generations of, of people's lives were changed. You know, all my teammates died, so they'll never have kids. That generation st- stopped. Their families forever exist. So many lives were changed that day by that 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 piece. And guess what? And everybody in America had no clue what was going on. Like right now, there are U.S. troops. Somebody wondering if they're going to be able to come home and see their family again. That's reality. Whether you want to ignore it or not, like that's reality. And that was me, September 8, 2009. And it was just a... Gosh, it was a chaotic day. I think that's an important thing to highlight too, is like, you know, how, what percentage of people that are going into these actual firefighters, what is their average age? Like the, the, the military at that level is primarily made up of, you know, E1s to E4s, maybe some staff sergeant, like the primary, primary bulk of the individuals who are going in and fighting these wars are 18 to 22 year old kids, right? Like you listen to, you know, all of these conversations around, you know, gun control and, and, you know, should he be able to purchase a gun or not at 18 years old and all the stuff of like the recent events of the tragic events that have happened. And you don't even remember the fact that worse, our government literally arms 18 year olds and sends them to fight on their behalf. And the 18-year-olds that are signing up to go into the military don't don't have the big picture in mind. They barely paid attention in government class, if it's like me. Um, and and they, they really don't even know how our political system works, let alone geopolitics and what's happening around the world and like what's actually going on. Um, they're 18 to 22-year-old kids who are going to fight the wars of these 85, 70-year-old politicians who, who they, they don't have a clue what they're actually fighting for, other than you know what you'll hear a lot in, in these kind of videos is you'll, they'll hear them talking about who they're with, right? Their team, um, saving their buddy next to them. That's what they fight for, right? And the fundamental ideal that they have surrounding what the United States is and what it means to be a patriot and what the Constitution stands for and being the, you know, um, the, the, the freest country in the world. Right. And that, that's what these 18 year olds, the ideals that they're fighting for in their head at this age, besides the actual like geopolitical situation of why we're actually going in there, what we're actually doing and why we're doing it. They're kids going into these situations. And what you'll find is like, this is kind of an interesting conversation is, you know, he talks about, you know, they were married and they, they did, had, didn't, weren't old enough yet to have kids, right? They weren't old enough to, to be able to see what life is actually about when you, when you look at your child's eyes when they're born and, and they, they didn't get any of that. And, and not only that, but their, their family lineage is gone. They, 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 it will not reproduce. There will be no duplication of that DNA because of these wars that they were sent to fight at at such a young age. And so, you know, to me, it's like these conversations running, like, is an 18 year old able to carry a gun? Well, if you're going to allow people to sign up for the military and to go fight on behalf of our government in wars that these 18 year olds don't even understand. Yeah, you got to You can't you can't like have your cake and eat it, too, as people say. Right. Like you can't not allow an 18 year old to protect his own home because he can't purchase a weapon, but then send him to Afghanistan to go fight the Taliban in the same breath because you think that it's okay for them to do that under their scenario. 
right? And under your your reasoning, right? Because you know, and that's kind of how you have to look at that gun situation. I guess we'll we'll take a, a little skirp side sidetrack here. You know, to me, the gun situation is an interesting one, and especially with the most recent events and things. Um, that you know, the, the, if you look at the government from a large standpoint, is the government is its own, you know entity, right? It's its own uh, household, right? It's a household of 300 million people. And then you break it down to the state level, right? And the, and the state is just a smaller organization of that same family, right? That, that it breaks down to a smaller number. And inside that you have counties and inside that you have cities and inside that you have subdivisions and inside that you have households. But what the country is, is just its own family entity that has decided that we're on the same team, Right. And we all live around each other, so we should, you know, be kind to each other and we should have some rules and that type of deal, right? So when you break it down to like the, the household level, the, the, the government in, in the stance when it comes to gun control is basically just the, the government wants to be able to control weapons for its own personal reasons, to defend itself, right? As a country, as a country family, it wants to defend its property, right? It wants to be able to do that. And it does that through military action. Right now, when you break that to the state level, you have, you know, sheriffs and the National Guard and you, you have state entities that want to be able to defend itself against its enemies. And then you have households, right? You have you have actual physical subdivisions, your home in that subdivision, and you need to be able to do what the government does. You need to be able to do what the federal government does, what the, the state, they all know that they have to do it. It's the same reason Joe Biden has a security guard, armed security all around him at all times. Same thing with celebrities, same thing, you know, all of these people that are preaching gun control are constantly surrounded by their own security who are all armed, right? But, but you're, you're the peasant. You don't need that stuff. You, who, what do you have to worry about? You're not famous and, and like I am, you're not a political elite like me. What do you have to worry about? Right. So they want to strip your right away. But if there's no guns that are allowed, right, if they strip your right to, to own a handgun or to purchase without, you know, ex extreme background checks where they get to say whether, you know, you get it or not, if, if you, that's allowed, you know, that that allows them to be, you know, when, when the Constitution was written and we're getting on a little bit of a rant here, <laughs> when the Constitution was written, the idea for for the Second Amendment was not was was generally not yet yeah, for hunting. Right. Sure. You should be able to have a gun. Right. But it's also protection of person and protection of property. And it's also protection from a totalitarian government. Right. So so in the same way that they want to defend themselves against other countries, they want to defend themselves against their enemies. There are people, there are bad individuals, bad countries out there who want to harm America. There are also bad people out there who want to harm the president. There are bad people who want to harm celebrities and there's bad people who want to harm me and you. And so why should it be any different if the government, it, it, okay, I can much rather get on the page of the government if they want to say that nobody gets guns, we don't get guns, we're going to, we're going to sign a treaty with the UN where everybody just throws all of their weapons in a circle and we're going to go back to the stone age and we're just going to beat the shit out of each other with sticks because that's, you know, that we don't like guns anymore. If everybody agrees that we're on the same page and there's no longer going to be gun manufacturers, that every single gun that's ever distributed, you know, is, it has has been rightfully returned and checked next to a box so that we know there's zero guns that are out there. We can have a conversation about that. But if but if the government wants to be armed, if our president wants armed security, if our celebrities get armed security, if everybody but the peasants gets to have guns and then they want to take away your right from that, no, I'm on I'm not I can't buy into that. 
right? Because it, it, for, in the same way as it's, it's, a, it's a microcosm, the family household is a microcosm of what the government is. And so to strip the family of, of their ability to defend themselves, it just doesn't work, right? It's the same reason our government will never lay down their arms and just give it to the UN and say, all right, right, if we're all going to throw in our weapons on an individual level, why don't we do it on the government level? Well, because we all know that there's sneaky ass people out there who want to do you harm. There's countries who want to kill American soldiers, right? We know that. We also know that there's individuals out there who are going to break into somebody's house tonight and murder somebody. It's just, it's just, unfortunately, the side effect of humanity is there is bad people that are out there. And that, in that you see that in that macro level of our government, our government is not going to just throw their guns into the middle with every other government and say, oh, all right, we're all safe. We're going to go back to using sticks to beat the shit out of each other. No, they're not going to do that. They know that the power is in the weaponry. The power is in the individual who holds the, the, the most deadly weapon, right? And, and so why would we as individuals give that up, all right? Anyways, side note, everybody who goes into the military, if you're going to say 18 is too young to own a weapon, to go into a, a, a gun store and purchase an AR to protect yourself, to protect your family, to go hunting, whatever the hell you do, then you have to change the military age. You can't just you you can't just allow them to shed blood on your behalf, but not allow them to protect their own home. It makes no sense. So, anyways, let's let's continue this Dakota Meyer clip. It's amazing how you could have uh, thousands of days in your life, and one day changes the way you look at everything. One day changes the way you look at everything, and you know, and like the the further I go on, I, I look at it different. You know, I always talk about this story of. Um, you know, whenever this guy came up behind me and, and I ended up, I ended up killing him with a rock. And I always remember just like, I remember it, like I see it every night. Like I remember, like I just see his face and like, I just, cause there was a point, there's a point that I, I feel like that anybody that when they, whether they're injured or anything, like they realize they're defeated. Like they, like it, like, I don't know. I, I just think there's a point when you look at somebody and they know they're going to die. And I'll never forget that. And I, you know, now I look at it and I see it and I always think that like, I, this guy is a son to somebody. His mother and father are going to miss him. This guy, he believes in his cause as much as I do. He doesn't believe he's wrong. Th this guy, this guy, he, he could have had a wife or kids that are never going to see their father again. Just like, you know, my dad might've never seen me again if it was switched. And really, I don't even know. I don't hate him. I don't even know this guy. We're just here at this place right now because we were born in two different countries. Were you out of weapons? Were you out of, out of ammo? No, so my, no, he had came up and he started choking me. Um, I had shot him once before, and he I was trying to pick my buddy Dada Lee, my, my my one of my closest Afghans, Dada Lee had been shot. He he got he had been killed, and I came around this terrace to get him, and I was on my knee, and this guy came up behind me, and um, so he didn't have a weapon either. He was trying. no, he did. He he had a weapon, and I ended up shooting him from the ground, and I thought he was dead when he fell on the ground, and I kind of moved down and got down with Dada Lee because I was still getting shot at from this machine gun up on this hill. And I was trying to make myself small as I could, and um, this guy ends up coming up and choking me. Like I thought he was, I thought he was dead, and he ends up choking me out. 
he starts trying to choke me out and eventually let up a little bit and I end up getting around him and I just got we were fighting back and forth and I can remember all I was thinking about was like don't let his legs get on me like you know these guys their legs are I mean they've been crawling up mountains their whole life and he was a he was a pretty big dude and um I just remember getting on top of him finally got on top of him and I ended up I, I was rolling on top of him he didn't have all the gear on I did and um I ended up I remember getting on top of him like like I was straddling him and I'm just reaching up trying to grab for anything I can and I'm holding him and uh, holding him down with my throat with my my forearm and I'm just grabbing anything I can and finally I ended up grabbing a rock and I just started beating this dude's face in and I just started beating and beating and beating and I remember I remember just like finally like after hitting him you know I don't know three or four times four or five times whatever I remember him like finally just kind of looking at me and like just it's it's like he's like just I'm just looking him in the eyes like obviously closer than me to you right now and you just see all the you can tell like he knows where this is going and I always think about that you know um obviously I would kill him a million times over again right he he was the enemy like I don't feel bad about that part of it but I just think about like in that moment if I can find a way to relate to him in that moment a man I'm taking his life we all in America can find a way to connect with each other. If we don't connect with each other, it's because we choose not to. I don't care what your differences are. Like, don't, like, find a reason of why we can get along, not why we should not get along. Right. Wow. So that's pretty, um, like I was saying, a little uh, a little intense, right? That's, that's uh, truly a horrific situation that this man found himself in and, and how unfortunate to have to be the in a situation where you have to take somebody's life or it's your own, right? And you said that, he said that, I would do it a thousand times over if I had to because he was the enemy, right? He was going to do that to me. He came up to me to choke me. There's nothing that I could have done to put, put, put myself out of the situation besides not go in the military, you know, however many years ago. He had been in three years ago. Um, but but he was positioned in, in, in somewhere where he had to defend himself and, and had to defend the people around him. And, you know, what what he didn't talk about there was the what led up to that. But I believe none nobody on his team made it out. It was just him in that situation. And, uh, you know, that's, that's something that's easy to forget, too. It's easy to, like, glorify them. It's easy to, like, put them on a pedestal because they went off and fought. But, like... Man, it's it's such a mixed emotion. It should be such a powerful thing on Memorial Day to like look back at what they actually went through, right? What what they actually had to endure, both in the in the moment and then for the rest of their life after these actions, after defending themselves, after you know um, positioning, being positioned in a way where they had to go through this and and do these things to other people. And it's probably not very often. Well, maybe it is. Maybe you know. But but it's 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 refreshing to hear. Someone, you know, I guess refreshing and, and interesting to hear somebody go from speaking about beating someone's face in with a rock four or five times and, and, and seeing them really just like decide that they're okay, not okay with it, but just decide that like, oh, this might be it, right? To like actually have to look at the humanity of an individual in that moment and realize, you know, that maybe this is the end of your life, that you're not going to see your children and, and on both sides of it, right? It's like... The, the I don't know, I think the more developed we get as a world, right, as a consciousness, as an individual, the more we realize that like these wars, at least from, you know, uh, 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 
human aspect or like just makes no sense to be fought in these manners like literally neither of those men knew the ge geopolitics down to the core of what they were there fighting for they were positioned by people in power who had agendas in mind that they wanted to accomplish on the backs of this man losing his life in this situation where he went to you know go choke dakota meyer um Either which way, it's like it, it, it's a horrific event because he, just as easily, it could, whoever picked up that rock first, right? Whoever was put, put in a, a position where they could have walked away alive would have seized that chance. But they were only in that position because of the individuals who put them there. But anyways, let's not take away from the, the heroicism. Heroicism? Yeah, heroicism is a word. Heroicism. Let's not take away from the heroicism of that, you know, individual in that moment who, who you know, faced their fears and had the courage to fight in this situation. And 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 now, it, like I said, it's a it's a mixed emotion. You can't just like throw them up on a pedestal, and you know, you have to have empathy still, right? It's not just like look at the heroes. It's like man, what these people had to endure to allow us to enjoy our lives the way that we do allow us to maintain our freedom and our, our our sovereignty from other nations and and how easily it is to forget the horrific actions when just putting them on that pedestal when just looking at them as a hero it's easy to forget everything that they had to go through and like i said everything they're going to have to endure from here on out but it's it's important to understand how deeply complex these things are, even for an 18, 19, and 20-year-old to have to handle and, and, and to not even be in your like your adult life, right? Like you're 17, 18, 19 years old, you sign that dotted line, and then you go off and you have to experience such trauma and then take that into what you believe to be normal everyday adult life when you're 24 and you, you have your DD-214 in your hand and you're ready to like take on the world if you're one of these individuals who went through this, like you don't, you don't have the same lens as everybody else. You have such a heavier burden to take into everyday life, to take into your first marriage, to take into your, you know, to, to, to parenting your children. And you have such a different vantage point of what, you know, what it means to, to go into the military and what it means to protect your country and to what it means to have a constitution the way that we do and be willing and able to protect and defend it. Um, it's heavy, right? Like that, 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 that's a kid, 19 years old is a kid. And then to carry that burden into every other year, every other decade, every engagement, every family reunion, whatever it is like to you, you carry that with you. Um, so, you know, it's, it's something that's refreshing too, is looking at all these people and looking at how normal they are, right? Like every single one of these guys could just be right next to you on a plane or, you know, talk to you at the, at the bar or, you know, it's, so, you know, it, it speaks to human resiliency too, right? To be able to experience something that horrific and then to come out and still be able to just leave your house, let alone form a sentence or get on a Joe Rogan interview, right? Like, man. So the next one we're going to listen to is Salvador Gianta. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but Salvador Gianta. Um, we will go ahead and listen to this clip, and then we will discuss it too. This is a pretty incredible story. I haven't read too deep into it, um, but I'm, I'm interested to hear it. So here we go. I grew up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I am the oldest of three children. It was the Midwest, middle class, sunshine, rainbows, green grass, you don't have to lock the door kind of neighborhood. That was where I grew up in Iowa. I was about to graduate high school, and I heard a, a radio commercial come on. And I said, you know, come on down, see the recruiter, get a free t-shirt. 
who doesn't want a free t-shirt? I'm working at Subway, I want a free t-shirt. Of course I want a t-shirt. So I went down and I, uh, I talked to the recruiter and kind of the things that he said started making sense. You know, we were a country at war. This was 2003, we just jumped into Iraq. We, we've been in Afghanistan since 2001. This is my chance, I can make a difference if this is what I want to do and I can do it everywhere, but not in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. My great grandparents came over from Italy in 1904. No one that I know of in my immediate family served in any sort of military. This is my chance to say, you know, the Juntas are going to go serve. I'm going to do it. Salvatore Junta enlisted in the U.S. Army in November of 2003. After excelling in basic training and infantry school, he was deployed to Afghanistan in 2005 and again in 2007. The second tour would station him at a remote firebase in the deadly Korangal Valley. I remember being so excited to go. I wasn't just excited, I was ready. I'm gonna go there and kick in doors and solve this, we'll wrap it up, we'll go home, we'll drink some beers and say, you know what? I served in the United States Army. I'm proud of that every day. And within three months of being in country, uh, an IED took out a truck and killed four and the gunner lost both of his legs. These are people in the prime of their life. They will never be stronger than they were that day to no longer have a tomorrow. That was when I truly felt that I was in the Army. My second deployment was the Korngal Valley. It was like nothing that I had ever seen in Afghanistan before. We were at the bottom of a valley with mountains, just sheer straight, straight up and down on every single side. In every single place you're gonna fight, you are at the bottom. And there's no spot you can choose because you don't get to choose a spot, they get to choose a spot. So Operation Rock Avalanche, gonna go to I guess that's something that's fair to mention too, is they don't even get to pick where they go or like some of the tactical disadvantages that they've been put into. Like there's a, there's a movie that came out surrounding, uh, there was a group of Marines who basically did a bunch of home videos, like early in the, you know, like literal, uh, camcorder mode. <laughs> like I think it was like early mid nineties. Uh, there was a group of Marines. I need to think of the name of the movie cause it's a true, unbelievably incredible depiction. Um, and it really seems like the whole movie that the, the depiction of it that they ended up doing seemed like a, um, like they took a lot of the scenes of this home movies that they made. And I think there was like four or five Medal of Honor recipients. I, I, I should have clipped that together for you guys too, but a really unbelievable uh, movie that, that came out about the, this specific, it might, it might be this specific area that he's mentioning here, where basically there was a, a big um, mountain area surrounding the entire, like a full circle mountain, and then down, down in the valley here. Um, there was a, uh, a, a military base that they were put in a forward operating base right in the middle of these mountains at the very, very bottom where they were at a complete disadvantage from every single point that you could look at. They were at a disadvantage from, and, uh, th there was many, many, uh, soldiers from the U S who died. Um, and, and every single day in this area that they were, they were fighting in, in this forward operating base, they would receive gunfire just from the mountains and they could barely even see where it was coming from. But the vantage point that they were, they were fighting from was just like, imagine like, I don't know if you've ever seen like, I guess that's a bad example, but if there's a, just a complete circle of mountains around this area, there's a base at the very, very, very circle middle bottom. So there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to run. 
Um, there's nowhere to, to even cover to, to, to reload your weapon besides the, you know, the buildings. And so um, this movie is truly incredible depiction. So I wonder if this is the same base that they were talking about there. I think it's like the, it might have been um, like he might have said it, but I think it was like they coined it like Death Valley. Um, but a horrific, horrific uh, tactical disadvantage advantage that these men were in from the beginning. Like, it's not even like they, they none of them choose this either. Like higher up chain of command guy writes a, a fucking sticky note and hands it to a corporal and says, all right, start a base at the bottom of this mountain without ever actually visiting it. And, and how many people died on the decisions, like on the backs of that decision, how many young soldiers' lives were lost because of this like terrible tactical disadvantage that they were given from the very beginning. Like they, they didn't even have a chance from the beginning. And, and so whatever this movie is, you got to find it. It's a, it's a great, un, probably one of my favorite military movies of all time. Um, and it, and it truly like captures the humanity, like the essence of what being in the military is and all the shit talking and camaraderie and all the, you know, difficult situations that you find yourself in. Um, it's a really incredible story. So, um, but if that's not the place that he's talking about the fact that they're putting our soldiers in these areas over and over again. Now I know that there's been like, since then, like statements that they came out and said, yeah, there's no, absolutely no reason that we should have actually put a base in this area. Um, I don't know. It, it's crazy, but I'll, I'll find the name of that hopefully before the end of this podcast. And, and, uh, we'll, we'll see if I can give it a shout out and let you have uh, a good movie to go watch. Cause it's a really, really incredible movie. Um, but let's, let's continue on this clip again. This is Salvador Gianta, um, discussing his, uh, the time that he received the medal of honor for place. We had no idea Well, we had Intel and there's Intel was lots of bad guys. That's what we came here to do. The first day we got in some contact a couple times each day, usually small arms, RPGs. There were some bad guys and they shot at us and we dropped some mortars and other things. And apparently there was a lot of people that they deemed innocent that died and they were not happy. We came to help, but now we pissed off everyone. And we're still, other than our little areas that we've been watching for the last you know, day and a half, we don't know what's outside of this. We left where we were and, and headed headed to another village. It's probably only you know, maybe another three kilometers. And we set up, we're doing listening posts, we're going in and engaging the villages, saying, hey, you know, what do you need? What would what would make your lives better? And how well, let's let's talk. Two Alpha, two Alpha, this is two Bravo, radio check over. I was a team leader, so I have a radio so I can click over and I can hear what's going on with the other guys. And we started hearing on the radio a chaos. Shooting doesn't make chaos. To hear chaos from people who had been doing this was strange. And we started hearing they're missing people, they're missing things. There's there's KIAs. We have we have Americans killed. We, it was bad. We just stayed waiting, listening to a million bad things happen to our brothers kilometer away you've never been more ready than you were right there and we couldn't do anything hey they took fire from right over here okay they overran a scout team position they overran a gun team and second platoon was going to go into the village and then we were going to be on one of the side peaks 
overwatching the village. So if anything, anyone started coming from the outside to come and attack them in the village, we already have the high ground above them. And we sat there 12 hours, 14 hours, just watching and waiting and, and nothing happened. The commander said, we're gonna pull out, we'll go back. It was, it was probably a two and a half hour walk. And the sun was down, but the moon was, was big. And that moon really does make a, just a, a huge amount of difference in what you can and can't see. It was Sergeant Brennan, Specialist Eckrode, the squad leader, Staff Sergeant Gallardo, myself, uh, Casey was my saw gunner, and then Clary was my 203 gunner. We went about 200 meters from where we sat. And that was when I, I've never seen before or since anything like what, what happened. The tracers come usually one tracer, four balls. So every time you see one that glows, there was four somewhere in between there. And absolutely everything, every single inch of the air in front of us, behind us, was filled with tracers. Thousands of bullets in the air, going both ways at this point. I think within the first five seconds, I think pretty much everyone had been shot somewhere. Casey and Clary were, were behind me, and Casey had the, the M249 squad automatic weapon, the saw, and so she can shoot about a thousand bullets per minute. And Clary was shooting his 203, which shoots a 40 millimeter grenade. But the guys were so close, he couldn't. The grenade, he was just making a lot of booms, but it wasn't on them, but he was doing exactly that. That was a good thing for him to be doing. And so I looked towards my leader, Sergeant Gallardo. I saw Gallardo coming back and I just saw his head twitch. And it wasn't like a, what was that twitch? It was like something just hit his head twitch and he dropped. So I just ran out and I grabbed him. He was kind of flipped over on his back, but he was okay. So I, I kind of grabbed him, was pulling him and he was jumping up and we got back and I went to a little bit of death light. It probably gave us maybe six to eight inches of relief in the ground. And I, we were both there and when that happened, I got hit. Largo's here and I'm here and they're shooting at us from here and I just got hit over here, which the people over here can't shoot over here. That is a very serious thing to figure out incredibly quick why that bullet came from over here. They, they set up in an L shape, which if we were to do it, we would do it exactly like that. We were trained from, from day one in basic training. It is a battle drill that a near ambush, what do you do if a near ambush happens? Well, you charge the line. You're gonna win or lose on that, but you're gonna win or lose staying where you're at. And if you stay where you're at, you're probably gonna lose. We threw grenades and we ran forward. Necro was on the ground and said he'd been shot. Brennan said he was shot as well, and he's somewhere up ahead. I can hear this as I'm running, and Gallardo went for Eckrode, and Gallardo's the man. I, I trust Gallardo. There's no more grenades, and I was already running forward, so it was pointless to stop, and Gallardo had Eckrode, and Casey and Claire were doing everything they could, and they were, they were keeping their heads down. And when I ran up, and I couldn't, I couldn't find Brennan where he should have been. 
This part haunts my dreams. Now, it's interesting to think in a situation like that, like everything that's going on, you know, all, all of the intensity of the moment, like gunfire from here, gunfire from there. You, you like it's, it's easy to it's easy to let it escape from to, from your mind if you've never been in a situation like that. And not I've never been in a situation like that. So it's just, just interesting for me, like the, the real time chess match that is happening in a firefight. And, and so, you know, and, and the stakes are so high. And for him to say that, like, you know, in this next moment was one that will stick with me forever. You know, in the intensity of that moment to have a moment that even like within that, however many minutes that this firefight's happening and you're seeing people drop to your left and to your right and to have something significant enough in that moment to 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 stand out to you and, and to have to also not only like comprehend everything that's going on around you, um, but to 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 react, analyze, strategize and then take action is like. It, it, it truly is a, a, a special type of individual who can find themselves in a position to gain this Medal of Honor because every single one of those decisions has to be correct, right? The, the, the analyzing the situation, the reaction to the situation, the, you know, calm, cool, and collected, and then the actual action itself, everything had to align, you know, perfectly for these men to do what they did. Um, so, you know, just speaks to the intensity of the moment and the intensity of what he's must be talking about coming up here. The fact that there's an individual moment within all of this that, that sticks with him specifically. So here's that. I came out and there was two guys carrying one. This is crazy. I don't know how anyone else got up here before me. I mean, this all happened like this. As I got a little bit closer, I realized what was going on. I deployed with Brennan before, we, the year before we were in Afghanistan for a year, so I'd been with Brennan for maybe four years. He's smarter than me, stronger than me, and he's smaller than me too, but he's faster than me. He's a better shot than me. And that's who's getting carried away. Junta immediately charged through the persistent enemy fire toward the two insurgents carrying Joshua Brennan. He killed one and wounded the other, then carried Brennan to a position of relative safety until medevac helicopters could arrive. You don't find out if you did the right thing or wrong thing until later. And sometimes, maybe if you did the wrong thing, maybe you don't ever find out. Coolardo, my squad leader, came up. He said, you know, I, just, I was talking to uh, Captain Kearney. And he said, you're going to get put in for a Medal of Honor. I said a lot of things, none of which were, were very happy or, or should be told now. Mendoza had died and Brennan had died. The other guys were going to be okay. They were all in surgery or getting the bullets out. You're going to congratulate me. You're going to pat me on the back and say thanks. You're stupid. The day at the White House, when the president put it around my neck, in the front row I had my family. I had my wife and my mom and dad and brother and sister. And in the second row I had some aunts and uncles. But the row behind my family was Brennan's family. And next to them was Mendoza's family. And as I felt this light 
silk ribbon go around my neck, I felt the weight of the sacrifices of those two men and the sacrifices of several of the people in that audience. No one did anything special. Every single one of us were fighting for our absolute life. If I didn't do that, what was my other option? I get congratulated and patted on the back and everyone thinks I'm such a great guy when there's people that will never get a congratulations or thank you or you're the man ever again or see their family, their mother, their father, their children. And yet you're gonna congratulate me. I'm the keeper of it. It stays at my house at night, put it around my neck when I need to. But this is not mine, this is not for me. This represents so much more. This represents not just my boys, not just Brennan, not just Mendoza, not, not Rugal who died the day before, not all the guys who, who have been wounded, not all the people who have suffered, not the families that will pay the price for this country. It's not for any one of those people. It's for all of those people. And if I gotta do it, I'm gonna do it for them. And there's nothing they wouldn't do for me, so how could I not do this for them? Wow. Yeah, that's heavy. Because, you know, can't imagine being in that situation, like he said, like getting your Medal of Honor while you sit out and watch the families of your friends that didn't have the opportunity to come home, let alone sit there from in front of the President of the United States being congratulated, right? Like, that, you know, it's like a such a weird, you know, status to obtain because all of the things that came with that, right? Like, I wonder how many of those men who have the Medal of Honor even, you know, look at it in, in a way other than how he looks at it, which is just like, you know, it's not this like, it's not the Stanley Cup, right? It's not like, it, it, it means horrible tragedy happened and you witness horrific things and likely your friends are dead and or seriously wounded and, and, and then to like have this like celebrity type event where the president is putting a, a, a necklace around your neck about it. And, and he can't comprehend a, a fraction of the, the, the agony that you went to, to be standing on that stage or to look in, to look out and see your friend's parents there is gosh, that's heavy, you know? And, and, and so the, the movie I was mentioning earlier was called the outpost. I believe it's, it's a, it came out in like 2019. I don't know if it's specifically talking about this one place. It might be, um, I'll have to look deeper into that for you guys. But the Korangal Valley is what is where um, Gianta served, where he got his Medal of, Han Medal of Honor. And so here, here's a, what it talked about. I was talking about that earlier, right? Like the, the base at the, the very, like um, the very bottom of this like mountainous area. And so here's six reasons uh, why the Korangal Valley was one of the most dangerous places in Afghanistan. So it says, nestled between high mountains of the Afghan side of the border with Pakistan, the Korangal Valley has the most has one of the hardest fought over patches of ground in the war on terror. 54 Americans have been killed and four Medal of Honors were earned in the valley or its immediate vicinity, while the case for a fifth is under review. One of that um, one was that of the first living recipient of the reward of award since Vietnam, Staff Sergeant Salvatore Gianta. That's who we're discussing here. Today, the American military rarely moves into the valley, but handpicked Afghan commandos, some trained by the CIA, fight constantly with militants there. The Afghan government maintains offices at the Peck River Valley, the entryway to Korangal. 
Their police execute raids and patrols in a continuing attempt to shut down or limit the shadow government operating there. When the American military was there, they faced the same challenges the Afghan forces do today. Some of these dangerous of uh, some of these dangers are common across Afghanistan, while others um, only existed in Korangal Valley and the other branches of the Pak River Valley. So it says the terrain is a nightmare. Steep mountains, loose shale, thick forests, and open patches of land made the area a nightmare for an occupying force. Command outposts were built in relatively open areas so that defenders could see approaching militias. However, this meant patrols returning to the base had to cross the open ground, sometimes under heavy military arms fire from nearby wooded areas and houses. The thick trees in the area allowed fighters to attack U.S. forces from cover and concealment. The attack would then hide their the attackers would then hide their weapons in the forest and return to the civilian population. The steep hillside allowed snipers to climb above outposts and fire into the bases as soldiers slept. Loose rocks on the steep land led to injuries from falls and trips. It says building new bases and keeping them supplied presented constant challenges. Probably just they show that in the outpost. Again, I don't know if that's the exact movie. I'll have to I'll look at that before we're done here. But in the outpost, they showed that like when they would actually go to get supplies, they would drive their Humvees up these mountainsides, like right on the cliffs, like horrifying to try. Like, you know, you ever drive through like Colorado going up to uh, like Vail or uh, Breckenridge or something. And it's, like, it's how I felt, but it's like not even close to that. It was like this small, small patch of area that you drive on down this like cliff mountainside. That's um, I believe in the movie, which is a, a direct um, uh, account of what actually happened there. There was people who died just from trying to get supplies and their Humvee falling off of the side of this mountain. Um, so, you know, just, just a horrific, horrific way all around. And that talks about getting food, getting water, getting gear, getting ammunition. Anything had to go through these cliffs, right? They had to go drive on these like super small roads leading up the side of this mountain through gunfire. Um, and that's just one, one part of what, what made it as horrible as it was. So it says its proximity to Pakistan gave Taliban a cross-border sanctuary. It also says the civilian population is largely confrontational towards outsiders. The U.S. faced multiple insurgent groups along with criminal elements. That might be interesting. So most NATO units faced opposition from multiple factions in their regions, but the Korangal Valley was a high priority for both the Jamaat al-Dalwa Al-Quran or JDQ and Al-Qaeda. The JDQ is suspected of having connections to Pakistan intelligence, and both groups are certainly well-funded. In addition, local insurgents cropped up under formation timber barons who lost family members and money when the Americans moved in. It also says that the Taliban's would often use human shields in battle, which would make it even more difficult in the Korangal Valley. So let's see what the outpost, the outpost was the movie that I was discussing earlier. Let's see where that was actually, um, where that was actually talking about. So it talks about the battle of, let's see, Koran Dash. So it says combat outpost Keating. So it was the Cam Dash outpost. Um, so that's what the outpost is actually about. So it says, um, let's read a little bit about that. Now, this is what actually was that whole movie was surrounding this um, combat outpost Keating. So it says one of the several U.S. Army outposts established in northern Afghanistan, located in a remote valley surrounded by the Hindu Kush mountains, the base was regarded as a death trap. 
The troops stationed there faced regular Taliban attacks, culminating in one of the bloodiest American engagements of operating enduring freedom. The firm tells the story of the 53 U.S. soldiers and two Latvian military advisors who battled some 300 enemy insurgents at the Battle of Kemdesh. So, um, this is talking about the plot, the production, the release. Let's read through the plot a little bit because I believe it's just a direct translation from what actually happened. So, it says, During the War of Afghanistan, Sergeant Romesha and a new group of soldiers arrived at the Kemdesh under the command of CPT Keating. Um... Uh, let's go on here. So, yeah, well, watch the movie. I'll give you that. Watch the movie. It's a great movie. It's a good cast. The The storyline's really done well. The The scenes of the actual war are like crazy. One of my, one of the best war movie scenes you'll ever see to me was in The Outpost. It got like six point, I don't want to deter you. <laughs> I don't know why it got a lower rating on IMDb. It got like a 6.9. I guess that's probably pretty good for a war movie. Uh, you know, unless you're uh, Star Wars or something, you know, it, you probably need a little bit of flavor if you're directly taking a battle that happened in Afghanistan and trying to correlate it to a movie. Um, it might be a little difficult to get the highest IMDb. I don't know. The movie's great. It's a great movie. It's super intense. Um, it's a great story. It's the, the combat scenes are, are unbelievable. It, it's probably one of my favorites that I've seen. Um, so anyways, in the spirit of Memorial Day, go watch The Outpost. It's a great movie. You should definitely see it. So um, beyond that, let's go ahead and move on here. But but anyways, that just speaks to like the horrificness. Like these men here, they're going to the Keating or to Kim Dash or to um, you know where where uh, Gianta went to, and, and and you have no you have no say in this. You don't get to decide. Oh, you know. Oh yeah, they're sending you to the death trap. Uh, no, you can't say no. You 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 absolutely can't say no. You follow your orders. You go where they tell you to go. Right. So these 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 19, 20 year olds are put in a situation where they're put into a place described by Wikipedia as a death trap. And they just have to deal with it. Right. They just have to go. They just have to fight. And, and, and whatever positions they're put in because of the lack of leadership or the 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 terrible situations that they're put in by whoever is starting the, you know, these wars, the military industrial complex, the war pigs, the you know, whatever it is. It, it's truly incredible the things that these these guys end up doing in these situations. And, and like he said, you know, the the guy who he described as one of his friends was a better shot than him, was faster than him, was stronger than him, was you know, all of these things. And he didn't get the Medal of Honor. The Medal of Honor went to the individual who, who you know, survived that situation. And and now what's that's not the case always, right? There's posthuman. There's there's people who are dead who got the Medal of Honor posthumously, I think, posthumorous, I don't know, however you say that word. Um, they got it after they died. And so that's nice to hear at least, right? But 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 in this situation, it's like, it's not always the strongest, it's not always the fastest, it's not always the best shot who get these Medal of Honors, it's whoever just, who shows the most courage in these situations and you know puts themselves in a situation where they're saving lives. Now there's another Medal of Honor recipient who is on like, you know, I don't have clips of here, but it was um, um, some type of combat uh, 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 combat medic who saved over 200 people in one at one time without firing around. Um, I, I would love to read that story more and dive deeper into that situation. But but really, it's a, tr a, a sounds like an incredible story. Now, the next one that we're going to be going into, one of the last ones we're going into here is John Chapman. So this one kind of details a little bit more about like where what actually happened during the events. This is the first ever recorded 
uh, Medal of Honor. So where they actually have the video feed of what exactly happened in this situation. Um, so we're going to watch that. And then uh, we'll go with our, our Jocko clip, and then that will be the show here. So um, again, before we go, though, the first thing I need you to do, hit that subscribe button, hit the five-star reviews, whether you're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever the hell you're listening to this, hit that five-star review button. If you're not subscribed yet, go ahead and subscribe. Every single week, I have new episodes coming out. Go ahead and go back and listen to some of the libraries of the topics that I've gone into. There's been some really interesting conversations. Um, But go ahead and subscribe. Hit that five-star review button. Um, Check out our website, redpillrevolution.co.com is for losers and also for people who buy domains so that they can sit on them and want to make money off of it. I don't know. (laughs) Redpillrevolution.co. You can check out all of our links, Twitter, Instagram, Truth, uh, YouTube, TikTok, Rumble, wherever the hell, everything's everywhere. So just go there, check it out. You'll see all the links. You can subscribe there, subscribe on YouTube. Um, That's all I got. Now, next to that too, the next thing is um, there's only one way that I get support out of this podcast. And that way is through um, directly through me. I've, I've not wanted to do third party ads. I don't want to do, you know, whatever the hell, you know, me undies bullshit. Like I'm not there yet, guys. <laughs> the way that I found, um, where you can support me and you can help yourself. You can actually, um, go to our website, redpillrevolution.co right now. There's a link on there directly where you can actually run a life insurance quote for yourself. Um, it's really a really affordable coverage. It's really good coverage. Um, If you don't know anything about life insurance, what I recommend doing is a 15-year term at 15 times your annual income. And you're signing up with me. It's my license. Um, You are not signing up with a third party. It's directly through me, okay? Um, Redpillrevolution.co right now. I found a $63 a month got me a $2 million policy. I think that might make me, I don't know, I should start being concerned whether or not my wife is going to kill me at this point, I guess. (laughs) $2 million for $63. Seems like a fair bet. All right. So go ahead right now. You're going to die at some point. We're all going to die. It's inevitable, right? But if you can make a few million dollars for your family, yeah, it's not, maybe not as bad. (laughs) Okay. Redpillrevolution.co. All right. Subscribe, leave a five-star review. All right. Let's go ahead and watch this next clip here. Um, This is about John Chapman. Again, it's the first ever recorded scenario where there's been somebody from beginning to end where we see the actual Medal of Honor actions that are happening here. Um, And here we go. Chapman, a U.S. Air Force combat controller, and the SEALs are attempting to rescue their lost teammate. You'll watch Chapman's heroic actions as he saves the lives of his entire SEAL team and then another 18 members of a quick reaction force, earning America's highest award, the Medal of Honor. Chapman and the SEALs exfil their MH-47 helicopter. John is the second individual to exit and immediately moves in the direction of the summit. He can be seen moving off to the right of the screen, alone. The team is taking heavy fire from every direction, as indicated by the arrows, as Chapman begins engaging targets. You can see spent cartridges ejecting from his M4. Chapman then begins closing with the enemy, forcing his way upslope in knee and thigh-deep snow. He is constantly under fire as he does this. Chapman's team leader begins to close on Chapman, following his trail through the snow. 
The dark mass above Chapman is a fortified bunker containing two enemy fighters, each armed with AK-47s, who are firing down on the team in the darkness. This bunker will come to be known as Bunker Number 1. To the left of the tree and Bunker 1 is another gray mass. This is a rock outcropping that came to be called the Boulder. Between Bunker 1 and this boulder can be seen the body of slain seal Neil Roberts, the man Chapman and the others are attempting to recover. Chapman, still alone and closest to the enemy, pauses to engage targets as his team leader follows him, but never actually catches up with him. Chapman, on his own, now makes the decision to charge directly into the enemy bunker, despite withering point-blank fire. Chapman, now literally on top of the enemy, engages the two combatants and kills them, saving the lives of the remaining SEALs. He does this from a distance of no more than 10 feet. These actions, by themselves, earned him his first Medal of Honor. He then climbs into and takes control of the bunker. Having cleared the immediate threat, Chapman is then joined by his team leader in Bunker 1. You can then see Chapman and his team leader engaging the next bunker, known as Bunker 2, which is situated to the left edge of the screen. This bunker, manned by a handful of Chechen and Uzbek fighters, also contains a heavy PKM machine gun, hand grenades, and rocket-propelled grenades. So this man got not one but two Medal of Honors for the actions that we're seeing here. And then the first thing, the first scene that you saw there was him basically um, being dropped and propelled down, uh, repelling down from a helicopter and then going straight at this bunker where they were receiving fire and uh, potentially saving all of his uh, teammates that were there with him. So um, really incredible, really incredible stuff. And again, it just speaks to the, the heroicism of each of these individuals and the difficulties that they had to go through and, and the courage that they showed. And, and again, you know, the, all of this, because they signed the dotted line um, in, in, you know, went into the military at 18, 20, 21, 22 years old, without a, a thought of geopolitics on their mind and just wanting to, to get in there and, and fight for, for the ideals of our country, right? Not the politicians, not the, not the, you know, the ideals, the idea that we are a free nation and the people that encompass that. Right. And, and so what an incredible story. What, what an, what incredible stories. Um, I, I'm just blown away by some of the, the videos that we just watched and hearing them talk about it. And so, um, I hope this inspires you. I hope this inspires your Memorial day weekend, right? As, as you are going out and, you know, firing up the grills and going to the beach and hanging out with your kids and waking up next to your wife and cooking breakfast with, you know, some music on and, uh, you know, take into consideration the hardship, the difficulties, the heroicness of these individuals. And keep in mind too that in every one of these situations or almost every one of them, there was men who died, who did not get the ribbon of a, you know, the feeling of a ribbon around their neck placed there by the president. And so again, I don't think there's any other way that these fallen soldiers would want you to celebrate your Memorial Day than drinking beer with your buddies and hanging out with your kids and loving on your wife and, you know, going to the beach and like doing American shit, right? Like there's no other way they'd want you to spend it 
but just know that you are able to do these things. And, and the time that you're off of work is because there's great men out there who sacrificed their lives and had the courage to stand up in, in unbelievable, unbelievable amounts of difficulty and to do the right thing at the right time. Um, and there's many who died before them so even they could get those medals of honor. So here's Jocko Willick. We're going to end with this. Um, but I hope you guys have a great Memorial Day. And uh, here, here we go. I am the fallen soldier, sailor, airman, and marine. Remember me. I am the one that held the line. Sometimes I volunteered. Sometimes I went because I was told to go. But when the nation called, I answered. In order to serve, I left behind the family, friends, and freedom that so many take for granted. Over time, I used different weapons, a sword, a musket, a bayonet, a rifle, a machine gun. Often, I marched into battle on foot. Other times, I rode to battle on horseback or in wagons, sometimes on trains, later in tanks or jeeps or Humvees. In early wars, my ships were made of wood and powered by the wind. Later, they were made of steel and powered by diesel fuel or the atom. I even took to the air and mastered the sky in planes, helicopters, and jets. The machines of war evolved and changed with the times. But remember that it was always me, the warrior, that had to fight our nation's enemies. I fought at Lexington and Concord as our nation was born. I crossed the Delaware on Christmas Day in 1776. In the Civil War, I fought with my brothers and against my brothers at Gettysburg and Shiloh and Bull Run. I learned that we must never again divide. In World War I, I marched on the Marne and held the line at Bella Wood. The war to end all wars, they called it. I just called it hell. In World War II, I fought everywhere. The beaches of Normandy, the Battle of the Bulge, the hell of Guadalcanal. I stood against tyranny and kept darkness from consuming the world. In Korea, I landed at Incheon and broke out of the chosen reservoir. They called it the Forgotten War, but I never forgot. In Vietnam, I fought in the Mekong Delta, at Khe Sanh and Hamburger Hill. Some say my country wavered, but I did not waver, ever. In the recent past, I have fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, in Baghdad, Fallujah, and Ramadi, in Kunar, Helmand, and Kandahar. As technology advanced, I used night vision goggles and global positioning systems and drones and lasers and thermal optics, but it was still me, a human being, that did the work. It was me that patrolled up the mountains or across the desert or through the streets. It was me that suffered in merciless heat and bitter cold. It was me that went out night after night to confront our nation's enemies and confront evil face to face. It was me. Remember me. I was a warrior. But also remember that I was not only a warrior. Remember also that I was a son, a brother, a father. I was a daughter, 
a sister, a mother. I was a person, like you, a real person with hopes and dreams for the future. I wanted to have children. I wanted to see my son score a touchdown or shoot the winning basket. I wanted to walk my daughter down the aisle. I wanted to kiss my wife again. When I told her I would be with her until the end, I meant it. When I told my children I would always be there for them, I meant it. But I gave all that away. All of it. On that distant battlefield, amongst the fear and the fire and the bullets, or in the sky above enemy territory filled with flak, or on the unforgiving sea where we fought against the enemy and against the depths of the abyss. There, in those awful places, I held the line. I did not waver and I did not hesitate. I, the soldier, sailor, airman, or marine, I stood my ground and sacrificed my life, my future, my hopes, my dreams. I sacrificed everything for you. This Memorial Day, remember me, the fallen warrior, and remember me not for my sake, but for yours. Remember what I sacrificed so you can truly appreciate the incredible treasures you have. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. You have the joys of life, the joys that I gave up so that you can relish in them. A cool wind in the air, the gentle spring grass on your bare feet, the warm summer sun on your face, family, friends, and freedom. Never forget where it all came from. It came from sacrifice, the supreme sacrifice. Live a life that honors us, the fallen heroes. Remember us and make every day Memorial Day. And on that note, guys, I don't think there's any more justice I can do here. I hope you have a great week. Thank you so much for listening, and welcome to the revolution. See you guys next week.